You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Good morning, all. We'll um, kind of do a little talking around before before we get started, and maybe some more people will drift in. But thank you for coming. This is I'm John Harbuck, and that's Steve Tillman, and together we are what. Um, Gil Cracky refers to as the Abbott and Costello of the Christian Ed lineup. Which is nicer than what uh, Paul Zoll used to say. That, that's, that's true. I promise you, though, that we will not get into um, who's on first anywhere in the next hour or the next three weeks. Um, these are epiphany stories, and the epiphany stories are appropriate to the season. This week, uh, Steve and I will talk about the story that you at the 9 o'clock service have heard read already in the gospel, um, the uh, epiphany story from Matthew. Next week, Steve will lead us through epiphany stories from elsewhere in the gospels, especially the presentation of the temple uh, in Luke's chapter 2. And then in three weeks, no, two weeks, the third session in two weeks, I'm going to get way out over the end of my theological skis and try to connect these New Testament epiphany stories to other stories in the Bible, in particular the Old Testament story of Moses and the burning bush. So if you can imagine how those two go together, I'd never considered it until Gil mentioned it and started to think about it. and. We'll see if I can get if I can manage it. So that's going to be the the King Holiday long weekend. So those of you who are not out over the end of your actual skis that weekend, or at the lake, or doing something else related to uh, holiday weekends, I hope you'll come and give me a few cheers or a little bucking up, or maybe you know score us on Rotten Tomatoes. I, you know, <laughs> well, before we begin, let's have a prayer. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Almighty God, you sent your Son to be one of us, and you announced his birth through your angels to the shepherds on the night of his birth. But then you announced his lordship to all of the world as the Savior through the Magi. We thank you for sending your Son. We thank you for sharing our humanity and for leading us to you through him. And now may the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight. O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Amen. I'd like to begin with a very short passage. Those of you who have copies of some of the Bibles that we hand out, you're free to read along. I'm in Matthew chapter 2. And beginning at the first verse, and this is the um, English Standard Version. This is the Bible that was distributed widely in the Advent a few years ago. But we've got other translations, and they're all roughly the same. So your results may vary, but not very much. The second chapter of the Gospel according to St. Matthew, and beginning at at the first verse. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? 
For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. Very short passage. Raises two questions. Who were these wise men from the east? And what was this star that they saw rising? Or in some translations you may have, we have seen his star in the east. Who were the wise men? And what was this star? Let's talk about the second of the questions first. What was the star? You've probably all heard speculation over the years that the star was a comet or a supernova, a comet, you know, not one like Halley's Comet, which shows up every 76 years, but one which uh, may be a 10,000-year event that had never been seen before and has never been seen since, like the Hale-Bopp thing a couple of decades ago. Uh, or a supernova, an exploding star, which would have been brilliant in the sky and something of a magnitude greater than anything that anybody had ever seen before and which would have been really startling and, and, and perhaps would pretend something really important happening. Both of those have problems, though, and um, these were illuminated very well a few weeks ago in a, um, an interview I read in the Saturday Wall Street Journal. Some of you may have seen it also. With the fellow who is the um, head of the Vatican Observatory and is the Pope's chief astronomer. I wrote that down. I had no idea that such a title even existed or that there was an observatory at the Vatican, but sure enough there is. The guy is an American. He was raised in Detroit. He went to MIT and practiced as a as an astrophysicist before he entered the Jesuit priesthood, and now he is the, the chief astronomer in the Vatican. Um, very entertaining interview. And he said the problem with a, with, um, a comet being the, the nature of the star is he said comets were fairly, you know, they, they were not unknown. And when comets appeared, we usually have a historical record of it, and we have none in the period of time in which it fits. And, uh, and furthermore, he said that whenever the ancients saw a comet, they usually associated it with bad news. And not only the ancients, um, the Bayou Tapestry shows the Halley's Comet in the sky in 1066, the same year that William the Conqueror showed up in England, and that was not good news for the, for the Saxon king and his kingdom. But um, the, also the problem with a, an exploding star, a supernova, is that they leave traces behind, you know, like the Crab Nebula is a, is a former exploding star. And this astronomer said, we don't have any that we can date to around the time when this would have happened. But he offered an interesting theory. And the little bit of, of Doug Webster's sermon that I heard on the radio as I was driving in touched on this also. A planetary conjunction around 6 BC. Uh, you probably know what that is when, when two or more planets get close together in the sky. They're not really close together. I mean, they're hundreds of millions of miles apart, but the line of sight from the Earth, they appear to be close in the sky. And right now we're about to have one um, in the morning sky early. Venus is way up high in the eastern sky, but rising up to meet it is Jupiter. Uh, about, a, about a hand's width apart this morning when I was walking my puppy in the, in the dark. Um, 
And, you know, the, these are interesting. I kind of geek out on the stuff. But according to this Vatican astronomer, in 6 BC, there was a phenomenal one. It was Mercury, Venus, Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn. The five planets that are most easily visible from the Earth were all in conjunction in 6 BC. And it would have been a phenomenal event if only anybody could have seen it because any conjunction that involves the planet Mercury is so close to the sun that it almost is invisible to anybody who doesn't know that it's there. And that's the problem, you see. Nobody would have known that it was there except perhaps these wise men from the east, if they did. I think they did, and I'll talk about that in a second. But um, that would explain why we don't really have any independent historic record of some extraordinary cosmic event like would have been expected if you had a supernova or if you had a, a comet show up. Uh, it, it, was, it was there, but nobody saw it, and nobody saw it because it was so close to the sun that it was not visible. But if you were an astronomer, you would know from the calculations of the movements of the planets that it was happening. And you maybe even saw it. They said we saw his star rising in the east, or as it rose in this translation. So perhaps just before sunrise, this planetary conjunction that is the favorite theory of our um, Vatican um, astronomer, this planetary conjunction would have been known to the wise men from the east if they had the ability to know it. And I think they did, and here's why. Because although our English translations refer to them as wise men, they were in the Greek translation, they were referred to as magoi, M-A-G-O-I, or magi. Magi, that's where we get the the term for the wise men. Magi comes from the Greek. And because Matthew wrote his gospel in Greek, it's almost certain that Matthew recorded these as magi. Now, what do we know about magi? First of all, what were their names? Anybody know their names? Good, good answer. That was a trick question. Nobody knows their names because Matthew never told us their names. Uh, Gaspar and Balthazar and Melchior, Melchior, those are three names that have just come down through sort of popular culture as the names of the three wise men. We don't even know that there were three. It doesn't say in the gospel that there were three. We kind of assume it because of the three um, gifts that Steve will talk about in a, in a moment, but you know we don't know. And they almost certainly weren't kings, and they absolutely weren't kings if they were if they were magi, because the two were separate. Um, we three kings of Orient are refers to um, there were uh, Old Testament uh, prophecies about kings bowing down to this Messiah who is to come, and that's where we've kind of glossed the king thing on top of the magi. But the magi were not kings. What do we know about the magi themselves? Nothing about these magi, but a good bit about the magi in the generic sense. We know, for, fact, for, for example, that the Magians were one of the six tribes of the ancient nation of the Medes. The Medes occupied a territory that is in the northern part of modern Iran, or if you pronounce it according to the way they pronounce it in talk radio, Iran. 
Um, the Medes were next door to the kingdom of the Assyrians, which we know from Old Testament scripture had conquered the northern um, the northern kingdom of Israel and carried most of the northern kingdom inhabitants off to captivity into um, Assyria. Uh, the Median kingdom conquered Assyria and the uh, those Israelites kind of disappeared into the midst of history. Today we refer to them as the Ten Lost Tribes. Eventually the Median kingdom was merged with the into the Persian Empire to the south and it was part of the greater empire of Persia under Cyrus the Great. So much so that the Medes, the, the Medeans and the Persians became almost indistinguishable as people. I had a friend in college as kind of an overeducated smart aleck who once commented, one man's Medes, another man's Persian, which I thought was really clever, but later I figured out he probably had heard it somewhere else. But <laughs> the Medes and the Persians, by the time of the great height of the Persian Empire, were kind of one and the same. And the, uh, the Magians had become something of a priestly class within the Persian Empire in their religion, which I'm I've read is Zoroastrianism, and about which I can tell you nothing. But uh, it was uh, the the, the uh, according to the Greek historian Herodotus, it was the uh, Magians who oversaw all of the religious sacrifices to the Persian gods. They were the the priestly class who, if they were not present at the sacrifice, it didn't count. Uh, they also were um, interpreters of dreams. Um, which was important in, in that religious uh, context as priests. They could interpret dreams. In fact, according to Herodotus, it was a dream that King Xerxes had, which was translated by, interpreted by a Magian to encourage Xerxes to attempt the second invasion of the Greek mainland, which didn't turn out any better for the Persians than the first one had. But it was also... Uh, uh, Magians who were along with um, the, the the King Xerxes, who interpreted the movements of the of the moon and the sun and the and the planets as to what it pretended for their their military campaign. So that's what the Magi had become by the height of the Persian Empire. But of course, by the time this was written, the Persian Empire was no more. It had been conquered by Alexander the Great and then was opened up to Western culture. And that's probably how Herodotus came to know about these, these interesting things about Persia um, and to tell us these things about the Magi. Uh, it eventually became um, a, a very easternmost edge of the Roman Empire, uh, known as the, the province of Parthia, but not governed by the Romans very much. So it was very much a, a sort of an independent, but very far eastern and very foreign area with, where these magi came from and, and came to Jerusalem to find out who this king of the Jews was. So with that historical and uh, somewhat uh, uh, cultural background, I'd like to turn it over to Steve, who's going to talk to us about the, um, the theological significance of the Magi. And take it away, Steve. Thank you. Try to get it on me. 
Uh, epiphany is a word, a Greek word that relates to making known. And it comes about in the Eastern Church, it really relates to the baptism of Christ. But in the Western Church, uh, which started doing something related to Epiphany in the 4th century, about 100 years later, it related to the wise men, the Magi coming, and making known Christ. And it says to the Gentiles, but in a lot of ways it was making it known to the Jews also. Because if we look in um, the third verse here of chapter 2, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all of Jerusalem with him. And so, you know, you get a little concerned when the king gets concerned. And Herod was king of the Jews, but he was a political appointee. And the Magi are not asking about some future political appointee. They're asking about a person that is to be the king of the Jews. And, yeah, trouble is... Herod would be troubled and upset if somebody was coming in and saying they're looking for the king of the Jews. And then, if you're in Jerusalem and the king's upset, you're going to be upset because with a person like Herod, who knew what he was going to do? He had no problem going and killing people, killed some of his own family members, I think even one of his wives. So, if Herod's upset, everybody's upset. And so then to figure out what was going on, he invited, told them to come, the scribes and the chief priests and wanted to know about this person that's going to be king of the Jews. And they responded to him uh, in verse 5 there. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, prophet Micah, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, are by no means least among the rulers of Judea. For from you shall come a ruler who shall be shepherd of my people. And so they knew what was to be happening. But nobody had thought about the king of the Jews, the Messiah coming up to this point, because in Luke, we have the story of the shepherds coming. Now, shepherds, if you may recall, were young boys, the youngest member of the family, out keeping sheep. They were unclean by Jewish law, so they're kind of the low of the low. So had they gone and told people they had gone and worshipped the newborn king of the Jews, probably the kindest comment they would have gotten was our sarcastic, yeah, right, because their believability was bordered on zero at best as it related to these things. So when the wise men came and inquired where they were to find this king of the Jews, it got everybody's attention. But it was being made known to the Gentiles because these were, as John was describing, they were what we call Arabs now. And that's not the people you would think that would be coming and making this inquiry. But they were. And and quoting from Micah, which he pulled part of this from Numbers, uh, the part, O Bethlehem in the land of Judea are by no means among the, are are by no means least among the rulers of Judea. And 
that was something that the Jews saw as a reference to the Messiah coming. And then, uh, further on, is from, um, and from you shall come a ruler who will be shepherd of my people. That was something that was said at David's coronation. And of course, Christ is from the line of David. So, Micah was pulling together what was already spoken earlier in the Old Testament, and these, the chief priests and the scribes who were interpreters of the, the law, that's what they pulled to tell Herod. So Herod, verse 7, Then Herod summons the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it arose went before them until they came to rest upon the place where the child was. They set out to go find. They followed the stars. John was talking about. We're not sure what it was. But it got their attention. And they got to Jerusalem, but they you know, probably were a little sure, unsure exactly where to go from there. And they learned... Okay, Herod wanted to do something. He wanted to go and um, do something because, you know, typically if you go and want to know where a king's born and is, most of us would want to go, hey, I want to go with you too. But Herod being Herod had something in the back of his mind, which we'll uh, talk about in a minute. But he talked to them and told them to go, and they went. Now, they saw something, there was some light that they were aware of and saw that took them to a specific house. They had some knowledge, something led them that they could see that others couldn't. You know, and we hear a lot of times in the Bible and read where you know, God made himself known and in a situation where others might have been but they didn't see you know, and it's a lot of times, you know, two people can see a car wreck and see something totally different. Well, that's not to say this was a car wreck, obviously, but the wise men were aware and could have been astrologers. Um, they were aware of this light that brought them to a very specific house, and so they were able to know this is where we are. So in 10... When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And were going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. They, from their background of what they knew of the Old Testament, from when Daniel and the Jews were there um, centuries before, some of that foreknowledge of the Jews and obviously from the lost tribes, they had knowledge of what was going on, what was happening. So they knew not to the extent that we know and appreciate, they probably didn't appreciate, but they knew that this person was a king. And kings were to be worshipped back then and given honor. And so they were doing that. And in so doing, here again, they made us aware 
of what was going on and what they were being exposed to. And that's this young child. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now, why these various gifts? Well, in a lot of respects, it tells who Jesus is. Gold is representative of a king. Frankincense were the incense that was that were burned on the altar. And so that would be Christ as the priest. And then myrrh was something used kind of like an embalming. So it would be death. So we have Christ the king. Christ the high priest and Christ killed. And so, but this is also a bit historic. When the queen of Sheba came to see Solomon and Sheba would equate with what we know as Yemen, she brought to Solomon gold and spices. So you have a Arab monarch coming to a Jewish Monarch in the line of David, bringing gold and spices. And you know, Solomon being rich, he didn't really need any gold. He had more gold than anybody. And if you go back and read in um, Samuel, um, the amount of gold she brought him was just pocket change almost as to what he collected in that year alone. But it was 120 talents, which is about 9,000 pounds of gold. And that's nothing. So, But that was still coming to give she was coming for wisdom, but it was coming to give a Jewish king recognition of his kingship. Spices also. Of course, where she lived and would have been. That's where spices came in from the east in Yemen. And so she would have had a lot of that. But the tradition was there of an Arab coming to worship a Jewish king. So it was very historical in that respect. Going to Bethlehem, too, is <laughs> it was probably confusing to um, Herod and everybody else, even though Micah talked about it. It's only about six miles from Jerusalem. So it's real close. But who would think of anybody coming out of, you know, a king being born in that little town down the road? You know, that's um, like, pick, not to pick on Greene County, pick a small town in Greene County, and, you know, you wouldn't think of a king, future governor or president or something like that coming from Greene County, Alabama. But that's kind of what it was like here. But we know from the Old Testament, that's where the king of the Jews was to be born. So they went down, they worshipped. And then we have in a dream, um, there in verse 12, and being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now, these were wise men. They were from Persia. They were used to dreams. I mean, we have Daniel interpreting dreams there for them. And that was something that what they were earlier on, 
that was part of their role, was to interpret dreams. Now, part of what they had, may have even had a dream that got them recognizing that star and understanding better what it was because God uses dreams we know well of. And in fact, in Matthew, he talks about Joseph having dreams. First dream was about knowing why that Mary was carrying the Son of God. Then, as we look down um, into further down, and let me find it. It uh, anyway, Joseph was um, had a dream. Which one? Thirteen. Thirteen. Okay. And now, when they had departed, being the Wise men, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt. That was the second dream. The third dream he had was even further down, and in verse 19, God told um, Joseph in a dream that Herod was dead. You can go back to Israel. They went to Nazareth, but they went back. So, Matthew only talks about dreams four times. Three of them were to Joseph and once was to the wise men. God, you know, even though the wise men were not Jewish, they were pagans, they still got this message and they followed it. They knew, they understood what they needed to do. So they went a different way. And, you know, in a lot of respects... There are probably not a lot of way paths they could have gone to get back to Mesopotamia, Babylon, without going through Jerusalem. But they did. And it's not like it was just three guys on a camel. They had an entourage that was, came in with them and departed with them. So if they came back into Jerusalem, it'd be real obvious. Herod would have stopped them as they passed through and go, hey, tell me exactly where I need to go. So for them to go a different route probably took a little bit of imagination on their part, but here again, they were following what God told them to do. And God uses, a lot of times, non-believers to help His plan to help move it along. So they went back a different way. Now, Joseph, in his dream, and looking into 13 and whatnot, the gifts they gave probably helped finance the trip to Egypt. It took money to go down there. It took money to get started. He may have been a carpenter, Joseph was, but it, you know, most of the time you know if you move to another place, you kind of got to have a plan for how you're going to make money or have a lot of it. And... That allowed him and them to make the journey, probably, with something available to them. One of the things in reading about the um, epiphany is that um, in the Church of England, the sovereign, Queen Elizabeth, and since today is actually epiphany, she will go to the one of the a specific royal chapel and make gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. 
just one of those English traditions that is in there. And since she is the, the sovereign is over the uh, Church of England, and in effect the whole Anglican communion in a lot some respects, a sovereign going to worship another sovereign. We still do that today. Still follow today. So anyway, that's where we were and are and how Christ became known to really the Jewish world, but also to Gentiles because it was these Arabs, these Gentiles that came and worshipped a Jewish king. Next week, as John said, we'll go into um, the presentation where um, Mary and Joseph take um, Jesus to the temple. But also, if you go and read through the um, readings for the next uh, week, um, and we were John and I were talking beforehand, since this is Epiphany, I guess next week is the, really the first Sunday in Epiphany, and it talks about the um, baptism of Christ. So we'll talk some about those next week. Any questions, comments, thoughts? Yes, Gavin. I heard a while back an interesting theory that a great number of the wise men from the East were exiled Greek philosophers. And you mentioned that um, Alexander the Great had conquered practically to the borders of India. As a matter of fact, there's a string of date palms in India that mark his furthest western advance. But here's a, here's a kind of a thought that how much of the Greek philosopher's influence was brought to bear on the Middle East in those days? And, and trying to run it down by putting in the, in the search bar exile of the Greek of the Greek philosophers. The most of the Arab Empire received most of the writings of the Greek philosophers during the period of time when there was a great period of darkness in that area, in intellectual darkness, and they received all of the writings of the Greek philosophers. Those that did not agree with uh, Muhammad were burned, but the others were kept as part of the Greek as part of their philosophy. And I just wondered if any particularly John had run across anything of that nature. I, I had not. That's really interesting because it um, it implies that perhaps the Alexandrian influence after Alexander conquered Persia was greater than and farther distant than perhaps we had assumed. That, um, you know, obviously the parts of... of um, his empire that were closer to Greece were more Hellenized. That's why the uh, first century Jews all spoke Greek. That's why the culture was overwhelmingly Greek. But the further east you went, I have always thought that the, obviously it didn't take nearly as well in the eastern parts of the of the empire as it did in the in the western parts. But that's an intriguing thought that some of them were exiled. Greek philosophers who may have influenced these magi. I was taken by um, Steve's reference to the use of God's use of Gentiles all through all through Scripture. Um, 
we've always thought uh, it's it's almost uh, passe that God was using uh, Caesar Augustus to issue this decree about taxation. The tax man calls and you got to show up, but that was the way he brought his his um, uh, will to uh, his plan to fruition that that Jesus of Nazareth would be born in Bethlehem of the lineage of David. The most obvious example, I think, of God using a, a Gentile is when the Babylonian exile took place. You read the book of Daniel and you come away clearly with the thought that, that Nebuchadnezzar, even though he was, he was not, one of, not one of the tribe of Israel and not a believer, nevertheless, he was being used by God to carry this faithful remnant out of Israel, out of Judea, and and keep them safe in Babylon until it was appropriate time for them to go back to the uh, the promised land. And here's another example with these these magi who were not Jews, who were not believers, who were Zoroastrians, but following this star and following this this impulse that was surely the work of God to bring them to uh, Jerusalem and then to Bethlehem. You, you, using Gentiles, you can go even further back. Uh, they ended up in Egypt because of a drought. Then how did they get out? It was a big battle between Pharaoh and Moses, but God was using Pharaoh as much as He was using Moses. But as it comes uh, to the question, I think at least these people from Persia, Persia were looking for knowledge wherever they could get it. They weren't just the dream interpreters that they were from the day of Daniel. So if the Greek influence had come, they probably very much drew on it. Well, everybody have a great week, and hopefully we'll see you next week. Thank you. you. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us for one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.